Happy Thursday. I'm Lauren Evans, and welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm joined today by my good friend and co-host, Virginia Allen. Lauren, it is so good to be here. All right, so impeachment is over. The State of the Union address is over. What on earth are we going to talk about this week? Um, I don't know. Maybe we'll just end the show. Yeah, let's just, yeah. Let's just cut it here. <laughs> just kidding. There ain't no rest for the problematic. Teen Vogue wrote another article, this time calling out a, quote, trans-exclusionary event hosted here at the Heritage Foundation. And today we speak to Emily Gow, organizer of that event. Plus, we'll be discussing the politics at the 2020 Oscars, how millennials are the most depressed generation, and Yale drops an art history class for lack of diversity. And of course, we couldn't do our show without crowning our problematic woman of the week. We're starting off this week with a sad story, but one I think everyone needs to hear. One of the columnists here at The Daily Signal, Dennis Prager, also of Prager U, recently came out with a two-part article titled, Why So Many Young People Are Unhappy. He starts his article with some disturbing statistics. Rates of suicide, self-injury, depression, and loneliness are higher than ever before. He also notes that people may have been happier during the Great Depression and World War II, despite the great advancements our society has made since then. Another study conducted by the American Psychological Association found that Generation X reported much higher stress levels and worse mental health levels than all other generations. Looking at these disturbing facts, we ask ourselves why. Why are young people more depressed than ever? Why do these numbers reflect a serious crisis? There are many factors that contribute to these statistics. Media and social media are both huge contributors as well as unrealistic expectations placed on teens. There is the increased use of drugs, and as we all know, we're glued to our phones all day, every day. However, Prager points to a major and less talked about factor, and that is the loss of values and meanings. Prager discusses the values that non-governmental associations represented in America, professional groups, social, philanthropic, and especially religious groups. As the U.S. government has grown, these groups have less space to operate, and they've gotten smaller. Prager also references the loss of, quote, middle-class values, which refers to getting married, having children, and getting a job. With the family structure shifting in America and less and less people getting married, these values seem to be of lost. Prager concludes his article stating, quote, the bottom line, the reason so many young people are depressed, unhappy, and angry is the left has told them that God and the Judeo-Christian religions are nonsense. Their country is largely evil, and their past is deplorable, and their future is hopeless. Wow, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> Virginia, what's your take? You know, I I think that Dennis Prager really hits the nail on the head with this one because it's it comes down to in so many ways the question of is this my problem or is it the government's problem? And I think, uh, you know, as as conservatives, as people of faith, you know, when we look at issues in our world, it's our responsibility to have that thought of, is this my problem? You know, if if I'm seeing hurt and I'm seeing people hurting, what can I do to be a part of the positive change to fix that? And what we see on the left is the question is that the government's problem? <laughs> and I feel like repeatedly they answer that with a resounding yes. And my job is just to, you know, hold a sign, to get angry, to post my angry thoughts on Twitter, to go to marches and to rail against the government and tell them, you need to fix this. This is a problem. And we can all get around the fact that, yes, this is a problem. But the answer, the answer is us. It's not just big government. Well, I think this problem is embodied We're based here in Washington, D.C., over on North Capitol Street. There's been this old, very pretty, but very rundown, boarded up church. And it's been there ever since I've lived in this part of the city. So for a couple of years, 
And recently construction has started and kind of curious. I looked it up and they're turning this church into a gay nightclub. Churches put so much value into the community and nightclubs are fun. You know, you go out, but after the night's over, you're left with a hangover and, you know, you spent 50 bucks, 100 bucks on a couple drinks. And churches, they're a place for people to meet anywhere from AA meetings to Girl Scout meetings, places for the community to get together. And a lot of times churches run out their buildings to even non-religious groups. So, yeah, it's sad. And it's sad that kids are left with themselves at the end of the day and not anything bigger. We have to have those sort of institutionalized uh, things in our society, uh, like churches and various, you know, volunteer groups and service groups that provide uh, provide really that empowerment to say, yes, you can make a change in your community. You can be a part of the solution uh, instead of just looking at what's wrong and, and getting discouraged and depressed as you just kind of sink into this hole of, of all of the problems that surround us. And Virginia, what do you think of the role of the media and our electronic obsession has to do with this? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this and obviously the media plays a role in in pushing a narrative of, you know, bigger government and and needing solutions and, you know, often, you know, really leaving God out of the picture. But as a society, you know, the media is a business and we we tell ultimately we tell the media what we want and kind of the old adage in journalism of uh, if it bleeds it leads is is still true today you know i i'm definitely guilty of this that you know i will click on the stories with the really you know kind of terrifying headline before i'll necessarily click on the really happy one because we are just kind of drawn to bad news as people uh, piques our interest. So if we're always uh, telling the media, telling big business media organizations that that's what we want, then that's what they're going to give us. So it, it's a both and the media needs to do, I think, a better job of really highlighting the good that's going on in the world and not just focusing on things that are divisive. But then we also, uh, as consumers, as consumers of the media, need to express ourselves that we want more than just the doom and gloom. And even just last night, Virginia, me and my roommate were sitting on the couch and we were both looking at our Instagram feeds, like our own Instagram feeds. And we were kind of laughing at how it was such like a picture perfect version of our lives and how we liked it, but it wasn't true. (laughs) And I think that's another major problem with that is that people are judging their lives based off Instagram feeds and kind of the highs of each other's lives and not the lows. And that really has a toll on you mentally. No, it it really does. It's not healthy. And I really admire the people that are brave enough to, in appropriate situations, be really honest about their lives and the the challenges that they're facing on social media in a way that's appropriate. Uh, But Lauren, I think that's so funny because I do that sometimes, (laughs) too. Like, I'll just go to my profile on Instagram or Facebook or something. I'm like, if someone looked me up, what would they see about me? Because I'm like, I don't really remember what I've posted and what's up here. It's like, oh, I guess that's sort of a representation of my life, but not really. You can even trick yourself looking like five years back because it's all happy memories. You're like, oh, five years ago, everything was great. And then you really think about it. You're like, oh, no, there's some bad stuff. I just didn't put it online. Wow, that looks like such a happy little life. (laughs) So, Virginia, I think this is another interesting fact that more than a third of Americans born after 1980 affiliate with no religion. So Dennis Prager really does get into how faith is such a major part of this. But how do we kind of get out of this hole? Yeah, you know, 
man, faith, it's, it's huge. And speaking as someone who, who is a believer in Jesus Christ, you know, I can really only speak, feel like from, you know, my own personal experience and, and what I've seen uh, in my own relationships with friends and with family. But, you know, I know that any time that I've kind of held the Lord at, at an arm's length, uh, I, it hasn't made me happier, that's for sure. As I've watched friends do that, they certainly have not been happier. So, you know, I, I think we have to, we kind of just have to get back to the basics. Like, it's it's not that complicated. It's realizing that, like, okay, Jesus, he's not stuffy. He's not an angry God. He understands what's going on in our lives and society and culture. He can handle all the craziness. Like, you know, he's he's not disgusted by it. He just, he wants to be a, a part of what's going on. He can handle the current events. So, yeah, I, I think it's in some ways we, we can't overcomplicate it. We have to. We have to just kind of make it simple of, all right, let's let's get back to the roots of of who we are as a people, as a culture and and back to faith. And I think, too, Virginia, you're so right. And that such a big part of faith is the inherent dignity of life. That's something that we talk a lot about on the show, because I don't think you have to necessarily be a Christian to believe in the dignity of life and, and life from the moment of conception and natural death, no matter what their political ideology, their male, female, if they are transgender, you know, like whatever a person is, we might not agree with them, but they have dignity. And I think a lot of times when you lose sight of that and you kind of are thinking more internally. We talked a lot about Taylor Swift last week about um, her documentary and how she, even though she had millions of dollars and, you know, she had everything that any American girl would ever want, she still felt unsatisfied. You really have to put your self-worth in something larger than yourself because, spoiler alert, you're going to fail. Your friends are going to fail. Your parents are going to fail. Your boss is going to fail. It's just human nature. And when you get wrapped up in these things, you get wrapped up in money or social media or whatever. When that fails, you lose everything. But if you believe in something bigger than yourself, it's like your safety net. Last kind of little statistic that we'll throw out in this section is that every 100 minutes, a teen takes his life. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for those aged 15 to 24, and 20% of teens experience depression, and only 30% of that depression goes treated. So really, this is a public health crisis. Lauren, you're absolutely right. It is. And I would just say to anyone who's listening, who's walking through depression, who's walking through anxiety, make sure that you're getting the help that you need, that you're talking to parents, friends, teachers, um, that you're reaching out because probably way more people around you are going through the same thing or have gone through the same thing uh, and can be a part of journeying with you. But, you know, I Going back to going back to Taylor Swift, uh, you know, that what she talked about in that uh, kind of feelings of, of disappointment was that feeling of loneliness that, you know, when you get to the top and you're there by yourself, that's really depressing. Um, so we're we're created for relationship. We're created to do life with each other. Social media is not doing life with people. We are we're created for one on one connection. So make sure you're finding that in your life. All right. Lauren and I are going to stop preaching now. <laughs> Okay, for our next topic, it's pretty much related, and it's really interesting to see how this polarization has really affected every aspect of our society and our lives, and especially when it comes to dating. There was a recent study done by the American Enterprise Institute that shows what political opinions make someone a no-go in the dating world. 
24% of Americans say that they would not date somebody who disagreed with their opinion on abortion, making this the number one political deal breaker. The study also found that 83% of people who do not like Trump would not date somebody who liked him, and 59% of people who supported him would not date somebody on the other side. Many other political issues are deal breakers for people, but none with effects as drastic as these. Virginia, without getting too deep into your dating life, (laughs) how do political opinions really affect who and who not you would date? Yeah, so I think there's a tension here because obviously you want to date someone who you can connect with and you can have a real relationship with. And if I'm being 100% honest, uh, the pro-life issue is, is a deal breaker for me. I would have an incredibly hard time dating someone who didn't believe that life began at conception. Now, when it comes to agreeing on whether or not a politician should be in office, I feel like that's a little like, okay, (laughs) not quite as important, but obviously really nice to have, you know, similar views on those issues. Uh, But, you know, I'm certainly, I guess, guilty of this for for a hot second. (laughs) I used a dating app. I was not a fan, but... (laughs) <laughs> on on this particular dating app, you could select like whether you were you know liberal or conservative or a moderate, um, and like I just totally ignored all the liberals. <laughs> I was like no, 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 and like moderates, I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll consider you. I'll see how you answer the other questions. So yeah, you know, I I think it's something that just right now in society, I feel like we're we're just very hyper aware of where do you stand on these certain issues. So I I think. When you get past kind of like, okay, we can agree on these really large issues, it's just getting to that place of, okay, it's it's fine if we have differences on budget or on trade policy, like whatever. <laughs> That's okay. We can still have a great relationship. And of course, even with people that, you know, you do have differences with on the larger issues like life and, and abortion you can still have relationship, obviously, with those people and really good relationships. You might not want to date them, but that doesn't mean that you can't have a really good relationship with them. I'll be honest. This makes me weirdly even more self-conscious about dating. And I do have a online dating profile. I never use it because those apps are the absolute worst. They're the worst. They're the worst. But we were just talking before this at in a meeting and I was telling my female colleagues how for a long time I had a picture of me at the RNC in 2016 as one of my main photos. And that's because I would be really nervous to go on a date with a guy who didn't know I was conservative and found out either where I worked or what I did and just like get the check and want to leave. Like that would be so embarrassing and hurt my feelings so deeply that I feel like I have to put up this kind of flag that I don't want to put up. I don't want somebody to judge me on my political views right away. But yeah, it, it makes me so nervous and it just adds another complicated layer. Virginia, I really wish everybody would kind of take your mantra of, you know, like, let's disagree. Let's talk it out. And, and I agree. Like, I would never seriously date someone who is pro-choice or doesn't believe that life begins at conception. But I think I disagree with you on the fact that I would go on a first date with somebody and talk to them and, and try to understand why they believe what they did. I probably wouldn't marry them. But, you know, like 83 percent of those who don't like Trump when date a Trump supporter, like that blows my mind. Like, what is it about them that they don't want to? And I mean, it's the true on the other side, 59%. That's, that's almost six out of 10 people. I I think it just really kind of puts what's wrong with society in a bottle, you know, like in a little snow globe so we can see dating. And we're in a time where we need more marriages. We need more meaningful relationships. 
I agree. Now, on you know something that we talk a lot about here at Heritage and at the Daily Signal is just the power of showing up, of being willing to have a conversation with someone who is different from you and find your connecting points. And yeah, like you said, Lauren, maybe you shouldn't marry the person, but you can yes. certainly have a good you can have a good conversation. Yeah. All right. Well, staying on the topic of young people and the leftist culture surrounding them, let's talk about PC culture on college campuses. I'm sure that everyone has a memory of taking an art class or another fun elective in college on top of a very heavy course load. I know I certainly did that at times. You'd look at your schedule and think, oh, I need a class that's going to help this uh, GPA stay <laughs> decent. <laughs> But PC culture has definitely brought some drama to one specific art class at Yale University, a popular course that has been around for decades titled Introduction to Art History, Renaissance to the Present is being cut after this semester because, according to Yale News, quote, student uneasiness over an idealized Western canon, a product of an overwhelmingly white straight, European, and male cadre of artists. But with over 400 students trying to enroll in the course this semester and only 300 seats available, the uh, apparent student uneasiness seems quite questionable. The art history department chair and professor of this course, Tim Berenger, said that there are so many regions, genres, and traditions equally deserving of study, and putting European art on a pedestal is problematic. I feel like we should have like a little bell that goes off every time someone uses problematic. (laughs) So the course will now be expanded into various courses, including art and politics, global craft, the Silk Road and sacred places. The syllabus for the main course states that it will look at art in relation to questions of gender, class and race and the relationship of art to climate change. These changes will take effect this year. So. Lauren, (laughs) Yale is trying to take steps towards being more diverse. Do you think they're going about it the right way? Hmm. I think that's interesting. If they want to break this class into more kind of focused areas of study, I think that's great. But I don't understand why they had to have this huge hubbub about how European art is so problematic and there's so many white men. I mean, they're ashamed of history. This is what happened. European history was the most famous in America for a long time. If you go around D.C., a lot of our buildings have Renaissance architecture. It's it's a fact of life. It's something that they're not going to be able to change. And they're ashamed of it and they want to run from it. And I agree we should be showcasing more cultures and, and more people and be more inclusive and show especially women's contributions to art. But the idea that we have to like ring the racist bell and make this huge hubbub about it just seems crazy to me. Yeah, it, it's really dangerous when we start, uh, you know, looking, I think, at any um, cultural influence like art, which is major cultural influence, and kind of setting it aside and saying, OK, this this doesn't fit our woke narrative. So we're just kind of not going to talk about it. Well, they're becoming the beast that they don't want to be right. They don't want to judge people on their skin color or their socioeconomic or where they're from. But that's what they're doing. They're judging these folks because they're from Europe. They're white. They're men and they were rich. And yeah, I mean, I I, I get it. Like, I get that their intentions are in theory notable, but in practice, they're really just doing this. Going back to that first segment is that they're doing this to kind of fill this self satisfying part in them and not actually to make their classes more diverse because then they wouldn't make a stink about it. They would just do it. 
And the fact that the demand for the class is still so great, it's not like they have no students, you know, wanting to sign up and learn about this topic. They have 300 seats in the class and 400 students tried to sign up. So I, you know, I, I'm a little sad that they're not continuing the kind of the European art class and then just adding other art classes to coincide. Uh, I, I feel like that would be the much smarter solution. I agree wholeheartedly, Virginia. <laughs> so do you have any other thoughts on on how, whether it be universities or, or different organizations, can really showcase diversity in a way that, that doesn't end up destroying the culture of, of the white male? Well, just start with the focus. What do you want to focus on? Do you want to focus on art in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s? It's not about people's skin color. It's not about where the art is from. It, it's about is the art good and what... What did the art do for society? And what can we learn from that art today? Yeah. Wisdom. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to take a quick break. You know, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. I often find myself overwhelmed. So if you're looking for a great way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day every day. I co-host the Monday edition with my colleague Rob Bluey to bring you interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. And of course, we do always start your week off right with a good news story. So if you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. All right, now it's time for pop culture. The 2020 Oscars were this past Sunday. It was an exciting night. The film Parasite became the first non-English film to win the highest honor of the night, Best Picture. But throughout the night, it appeared that some of the stars must have missed out on Ricky Gervais' Golden Globe speech about a month back when he asked that celebrities not use the stage as a platform for political speeches. The award show was full of political comments, starting with Brad Pitt, who won the award for Best Supporting Actor for his role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Here's a clip from ABC. Thank you. This is incredible. Really incredible. Thank you to the Academy for this honor of honors. They told me I only have 45 seconds up here, which is 45 seconds more than the Senate gave John Bolton this week. I'm thinking maybe Quentin does a movie about it. In the end, the adults do the right thing. More remarks came from Josh Gad, who, while introducing Idina Menzel's performance of Into the Unknown from Frozen 2, said Frozen 2, or as climate deniers call it, not Frozen 2. He went on to reference the Canadian version of the film, saying Canadian Elsa is basically the same, but with healthcare. And probably the strangest comment of the night was a reference to Karl Marx. Julia Raycart co-directed the documentary American Factory, which was produced by the Obama's new film company. Here's a clip from her speech, also via ABC. Working people have it harder and harder these days. And we believe that things will get better when workers of the world unite. Thank you, Academy. This appears to have been a reference to Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, which translates from German to workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Whew. All right. <laughs> Lauren, what do you think about this Karl Marx reference? You know, maybe it's just the bright side in me and thinks it's unfortunate wording. Workers of the world unite. It's not something great to say. 
I couldn't tell you one way or the other whether what she meant by it, but my gut says that she just said workers of the world unite. You know, I at first, um, you know, I, I didn't see that part of the Oscars. So at first I thought, okay, well, that just sounds kind of nice. Maybe, you know, she just kind of yeah. said that. It wasn't super intentional. But when you watch it, you it kind of looks like the gears in her brain are turning. turning. And she's very aware of of what she's saying and wants it to be a political statement. So, yeah, I I think that it's obviously discouraging uh, and a little hypocritical. You know, we see this kind of (laughs) the one percenters of the world all gather and they kind of rail against the political system together. You know, I I just think back to Ricky Gervais speech at the Golden Globes. It's like he really hit the nail on the head with that of he recognizes the fact that, okay, we are a group of one percenters. We don't really understand what's going on in the world. At the end of the night, we all go home to our mansions and our nice cars But repeatedly, this is what we see come out of, you know, these large Hollywood, uh, you know, red carpet evenings is these very, very political statements. And now, gosh, even socialism and communism are starting to come up. And they're not even funny or clever, like the Josh Gad stuff, Frozen 2, or as climate change deniers call it, not Frozen 2. Like, that's not clever. He's supposed to be a comedian. Like, I don't get it, the joke. Yeah, it's kind of cheap comedy in yeah. many ways. Make make jokes at the right's expense. Make jokes at the left's expense. Like, we need humor to move our society and have these conversations. But it's turned into SNL where it's just a bunch of elite leftists looking down at the rest of America and, and people don't like it. No, no, not at all. And it definitely turns people off. Like, you're not, yeah, you're not connecting, I think, just kind of with the humanity of these, who these people are. But I mean, do you do you feel like it's appropriate for them to be using their platform to to speak out about their political beliefs? Yeah, I mean, if the Oscars will let them and, you know, it's it's their moment, they can say whatever they want. But I also think it's Americans right to turn off the TV and, and not care about their opinions anymore. Jane Fonda tweeted about being at the Oscars and that she only wore ethically harvested gold and sustainable diamonds. Like, good for her for doing that. But what American can you know, relate it all to only wearing ethically harvested gold and sustainable diamonds? I wish that was my life. Yeah. That's me being like, oh, like, I have a climate neutral yacht. Like, aren't I so great? Like, it it's next level it it really is these people live in a completely different world and i i love that you read that tweet lauren because it does it just showcases like oh my gosh like we're not even on the same planet yeah <laughs> like i'm picking out my jewelry this morning that i got at target yeah. <laughs> i picked it up because it was 4.99 instead of 7.99 exactly exactly what a deal <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to be joined in the studio by Emily Gao. And we'll be talking about, uh, well, one of our favorite subjects, Teen Vogue. Stay (laughs) tuned. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. Welcome back. We are joined today by Emily Gow, director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society here at the Heritage Foundation. Emily, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on, Lauren. 
If you did not know, a bill recently passed the South Dakota House of Representatives that would criminalize puberty blockers and other medical transition services to teens under the age of 16. However, after passing the House, the bill was defeated in committee and is on hold until the next legislative session. Our favorite publication, and I use favorite very loosely, Teen Vogue, recently published an article about this bill titled, Transgender Youth Are Being Targeted with State Laws in South Dakota and Several Other States. This article makes multiple references to an event our guest Emily actually hosted here at Heritage titled The Summit on Protecting Children from Sexualization. Emily, what is the connection between this legislation in South Dakota and the event that you hosted here at the Heritage Foundation? Why did Teen Vogue call you out? Well, I think Heritage has been bringing together people from very diverse perspectives and political persuasions to talk about this issue that is threatening children all over our country, this transgender ideology that tells children and their parents that a child could be trapped in the wrong body and that they should undergo hormonal and surgical interventions that would mutilate their bodies and even lead to permanent sterilization. So, Emily, can you tell us about this event that you hosted called the Summit on Protecting Children from Sexualization? How could anybody be against that? So, yeah, that summit was the culmination of several years of work that the Heritage Foundation has done to raise awareness about issues affecting children, one of which is the transgender ideology. And you would think that most Americans, you know, would support the idea that children should have a time to be innocent and a time to be free from um, sexualization, whether it's through pornography or sex trafficking or um, sexualized curriculum in schools or this transgender ideology in healthcare. But unfortunately, that is not a completely bipartisan consensus because we have been heavily criticized, mostly from the left, for hosting this event. So why do you think this legislation, and I'm not necessarily talking about the South Dakota bill, but it's my understanding that there's lots of these bills all, all over the country going through state houses. Why is it so controversial to not give children under 16 these puberty blockers? Well, I think it's important to understand that the transgender lobby is really a movement led by adults with a very clear um, political ideology. Transgender ideology is inherently political. There is an underlying medical condition known as gender dysphoria. Um, but transgender ideology really says the only way you can treat gender dysphoria is through these harmful medical hormonal interventions on children, which I think you're starting to see that there are more and more of these bills in the states because the average American person, especially the average American parent, is saying, what? You're, you're going to operate on a child and you're going to do something to them that could sterilize them for life? I think we need to you know, press pause on this. And opponents of these bills say that these drugs don't do anything except for press pause on puberty until these children turn 18. Is that actually what the drugs do? That is not an accurate statement because, first of all, um, these drugs are being given to children at a very young age. Children as young as eight years old are being given puberty blockers. And a puberty blocker does stop a child's puberty. You're interfering with the natural progression of their growth. And then if children go from puberty blockers onto the cross-sex hormones, that does lead to their sterilization, which is permanent. You cannot reverse that. And then obviously, if there are surgical interventions like a hysterectomy or uh, removal of male reproductive parts, that's also going to have a permanent effect that's not reversible. So 
your event didn't just feature kind of your run-of-the-mill conservatives. There were a lot of radical feminists at the event, most notably the feminist group Wolf or the Women's Liberation Front. Can you describe that partnership and why they were there? Well, I think Heritage Foundation has given a platform to anybody who cares about this issues. We're not filtering out people based on, you know, whether they're on the left or the right. We are just saying, you know, if you agree on this issue that children should be protected from sexualization and particularly from these sterilizing, mutilating treatments, that will will give you the opportunity to express your views here. And some of the people who are really concerned about this political movement of transgender ideology are the radical feminists, like the lady who spoke from the Women's Liberation Front. Um, and we had other speakers, too. You know, we had a speaker here from the National Center on Sexual Exploitation speaking on pornography. So there are a wide variety of Americans who care about these issues. And I think that Heritage is simply given an opportunity to Americans from very different walks of life and political backgrounds to speak about this issue. Isn't it so ironic that Teen Vogue claims to be, you know, this pro-feminist organization, but then when feminists come to an event and they want to talk about what they really believe, they almost get talked down about in this article. It is unfortunate the way that Teen Vogue, first of all, doesn't really seem to know what a woman is, which we find with many of the mainstream organizations that espouse feminism, is that they don't even know that a woman is a biological female. To them, a woman is just an idea. You know, a man who identifies as a woman can be a woman. So they are completely erasing even the idea of a woman. And then on top of that, they are you know, condemning the feminists who are saying, no, there is a limited definition of a woman. And being a woman means something. It means you are a biological female. It doesn't just constitute an idea. It's not just a malleable concept that you know anyone can adopt for any reason on any occasion. All right. We're going to take a quick break. But when we're back, we have a little surprise for Emily. All right. Welcome back to Problematic Women. It is now time for my favorite time of the week, time to name our Problematic Woman of the Week. And Emily, we would like to bestow upon you the honor of being this week's Problematic Woman. Thank you, Lauren. I'm glad to join the esteemed company. (laughs) Well, Emily, your event was called out by Teen Vogue. And how does that make you feel that they took the time to write? I mean, this wasn't just a mention. This was like three or four articles. And it's in a mainstream magazine but also a mainstream magazine that's aimed towards teenagers. Well, I hope that actually the information that was presented at the Children's Summit will reach teenagers, especially female teenagers. Um, so Biologically female? Biologically female teenagers, the only kind of female teenagers that there are. And I hope that in some way the Teen Vogue exposure can help bring people to the Heritage website so that they can watch the um, event on the sexualization of children because it is teenage girls who actually suffer from gender dysphoria the most. It is teenage girls when they go through puberty that they experience something called rapid onset gender dysphoria and they begin identifying as a male. And you can understand, you know, anybody who's been through puberty, it's it's a tough time and it's very emotional and You know, a lot of girls feel uncomfortable with the changes that happen to your body when you go through puberty. And so it's a growing social phenomenon in America and around the world that it is actually girls in their teenage years that are the most likely 
to experience gender dysphoria. And they're the ones who need the counseling and the compassion that would help them to become comfortable with their bodies and also to explore any underlying reasons for their discomfort with their bodies. One other thing I wanted to talk about, Emily, is that when these young girls have friends who do experience gender dysphoria, they're more likely to experience that themselves. And then another statistic is that those who are already experiencing gender dysphoria, they have a way more higher likelihood of experiencing suicidal feelings or thoughts. So a Brown University researcher named Lisa Lippman published a study. Uh, she actually coined the term rapid onset gender dysphoria, and her findings were that the onset of gender dysphoria happens very quickly and it happens in clusters. And she found that it was oftentimes girls whose friends started to feel uncomfortable with being a girl, or they would see a teacher who identified as transgender, and then a cluster of girls would suddenly start to experience discomfort with their bodies. So her research is very important that she found there is a social peer pressure effect involved in these cases. And then the second issue raised about depression, well, this is also a really important issue to understand because the question of suicide is often raised by the transgender advocates saying why they need to have um, these hormonal and surgical interventions. But the facts show that the transgender identifying population already is 10 times more likely than the regular population to attempt suicide. But then a study in Sweden showed that after transgender surgeries, that population became 19 times more likely to attempt suicide. So the studies show that the outcomes of the transgender surgeries are bad outcomes because it actually doesn't resolve the underlying problem and it increases people's suicidal ideation. Wow. Well, Emily, I wanted to end on a more positive note. Can you tell any positive news that is happening with your work on this? Well, I think there are positive things. I mean, the, think the fact that parents around the country are realizing the dangers of what's happening to children and that they are forming grassroots parents' rights groups is a really positive and important development. I think that the fact that there are, you know, legislators who are looking at how to protect children from sexualization, whether it's in the transgender treatments in medical care or it's in, you know, protecting them from sexualized curriculum in schools. I think the fact that lawmakers are starting to care, um, that's really important. And then I think the fact that, you know, some teenagers around the world who have undergone the transgender treatments and then realized it didn't solve their underlying distress and that they could become comfortable with their own bodies. They're called detransitioners. Now, these detransition teens are speaking out about the regrets that they have and about the dangers that um, are involved with these treatments. And they are calling upon the medical profession to stop administering these treatments to kids and to teenagers. So I think ultimately their voices will be very powerful and we're delighted to be able to help their voices get out to the public. Well, thank you for your work on this, Emily. Do you have any events planned or anything in the works that I might read more about in Teen Vogue? Stay tuned, Lauren. <laughs> We've got some ideas. <laughs> well, well, thank you again, Emily. And a special treat this week. We've never done this before, but I make up the rules. So I'm going to name a second problematic woman of the week. My sister is having a little girl on Friday morning. So even though she isn't born yet, 
she is our second problematical woman of the week. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm the first time aunt. Yay! So. Looking for a short morning podcast to give you the news of the day without liberal bias? The Daily Signal podcast is a rundown of the top stories you need to know that the mainstream media is probably ignoring. All right, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Virginia and I are into a meeting, so instead I have a very special guest, Michaela Hubler. She's such a big part of the show. She helps us with the scripts every week, helps us pick out topics. She is going to come in and help me finish out the show. Hi, everybody. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Kelsey Bowler, Lauren Evans, and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.